Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 17th, 2021, and as we limp towards the end of the year, hasn't been a great year, I think most people would agree. Many of the problems, I think, have to do with the polarized nature of the world, particularly America. We are struggling to talk to one another. We're struggling to listen to one another. We've had a lot of shows about this. We had Peter T. Coleman on, imagining a world where we could actually begin to talk to one another. But these divisions, I think, are structural. They're deep. It's not just a question of not being able to listen. Um, Perhaps it's about free speech. We had Suzanne uh, Nossel on as a very distinguished uh, thinker and activist on free speech. This issue of polarization and the act of listening, the art of listening, seems to be bound up perhaps in an American fetish with free speech. Or maybe it's just about talking and listening. We had Joe Keown on, uh, another interesting writer, uh, putting forward the case for talking to strangers, which might be a way of breaking the ice, might be a way of being able to listen to people, different backgrounds, different opinions, different cultures. Or maybe all this is about politics and leadership. My guest today on the show is Rob Goodman. He's the author of a really interesting new book, Words on Fire, Eloquence in It and Its Conditions, which I think, and, I, and Rob will correct me if I'm wrong, which is thinking about political rhetoric um, as some fix, in a way, to the art of listening and a way of, of, uh, of confronting the polarized nature of contemporary politics. I'm thrilled that uh, Rob Goodman is joining me from uh, Toronto. He is a professor at Ryerson University. Uh, Rob, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. So did I vulgarize the book, Rob? Is this what it's about? <laughs> no, I, I think that's, fire? yeah, I know. I, th I think that that's pretty good. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I think that um, there, there's obviously a, a lot out there on the topic of polarization and on the topic of how uh, political rhetoric and communication plays into that. Um, that's not the only thing the book's about. It, it's about the history of rhetoric and the history of thinking about what it means to be eloquent and what it means to be a person who speaks in public, you know, going back to the ancient world, um, thinking about how that can tell us about politics today, what we can learn um, uh, from Cicero and Demosthenes, uh, or, or more recently from folks like Edmund Burke, um, about what eloquence means in politics and why it's important. But you asked about polarization. Um, I, I, that's one of the topics I try to cover in the book, uh, because what I'm worried about, concerned about, is the way in which I think a lot of our discourse around polarization uh, sort of gets the issue wrong in, in laying the blame for polarization uh, on us, on, on regular people, on our habits as, uh, as citizens, as listeners. Um, I think it's fair to say that polarization is, is a kind of not listening. It's a sort of refusal to be persuaded. Uh, obviously, people who um, are extreme partisans or extremely polarized you know, listen to people who they identify as members of their political quote unquote tribe, but there, there's not a lot of real persuasion going on. That's one of the conditions of polarization. And one of the things I try to say in the book is that um, that's what you would expect in a political environment 
in which the people who are trying to persuade uh, the political elites, the leaders, the politicians, the people who get to speak more than listen, um, aren't really holding up their end of the bargain. Something I try to describe in the book is what I call the idea of a rhetorical bargain. Uh, the idea that um, when uh, elites try to convince members of the audience, uh, when politicians try to speak to the public, uh, both sides ideally ought to be putting something on the line. Uh, it's, it's difficult to be persuaded. It's difficult to give up your existing beliefs, to, to change your mind, to admit you might have been wrong. Um, and it should also be difficult for the people trying to persuade us. They should have to be taking on some kind of risk uh, when they stand up to speak in public. Uh, yeah, you even at the end messages. of the book, you suggest you, 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 you raise the, um, the warning or the example of uh, Athens in which, I think it was Athens in which uh, people were warned that if their speech was misdirected or inappropriate, they would be put to death. So words have consequences, as my father used to tell me, <laughs> Rob. Uh, words on fire, eloquence and its conditions is your book on words on fire. Uh, how do words catch fire, Rob? Uh, you begin uh, your book with a, with a fascinating um, quote from Carl Gustav Jochmann. I, I don't actually know who he is, but uh, it's a wonderful quote. Lords and serfs are seldom good speakers. Um, so I'm curious as whether you think that's true. And more importantly, what makes a good speaker, Rob? Yeah, well, I, I do think it's true. That, that's why I used it as, as the uh, epigraph of the book. And I, I, the reason it strikes me as true is that when, when you speak from a position of power, if you're a lord who doesn't really have to convince, can just kind of dictate, um, you, you won't really work on the techniques of, of persuasion or putting yourself on the level of the audience and thinking about what they might um, what they might need and what they might want. And of course, if, if you're a serf, if you're at the bottom of the, the hierarchy, uh, you won't really have an opportunity to practice speaking at all. Uh, you know, going back... To, to the ancient times that you mentioned, uh, rhetoric and eloquence are very closely associated with, with uh, freedom, uh, liberty, uh, democracy in some cases, uh, republicanism in other cases. But they're, they're arts that are practiced in freedom. They're the arts of freedom, of free and equal citizens uh, trying to uh, convince one another, uh, to speak to one another from some position of equality. Now, and and made, in that yeah. sense, Rob, of course, and I, I, did a, I made a film a couple of years ago, How to Fix Democracy, in which I went back to the public space, the panics in Athens. You need a public space, don't you? You need a place where people are comfortable and free to speak. That's absolutely right. You need you need a place in which um, uh, people who occupy positions of elite leadership in society um, can still come into confrontation with the public uh, in the course of trying to win them over or not. Um, and that, I think, is what has been lost a little bit. And I think that contributes to a lot of the problems with you know, both both the state of political speech in our world uh, and also the the phenomena of polarization we just talked about. Rob, um, would it be fair to fit you into the Habermasian tradition, Jürgen Habermas, the uh, the great German 20th century uh, sociologist and philosopher? Um, he's a theorist of the public sphere, and and you end your book with. Um, a, a, a Habermasian call for the public sphere. Do you fit yourself in? I, I know you quote my old friend Simon Chambers, right. another leading uh, Habermasian. Is Habermas the key to all this? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I'd say he's the key to all this. And of course, um, you know, far be it for me to disagree with someone who's just sort of a giant in the field. But I, I'd say that we have different emphases and that his idea of deliberation or an ideal speech situation is a little bit different from what I think of when I think about rhetoric. 
But what I what I got from him is when you, you mentioned what he said about the public sphere. It's this idea that when he describes the public sphere emerging uh, in, in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, it has all sorts of compromising facts about it. It's a bourgeois thing. It's an exclusive thing. It's a thing for not, that not everyone could participate in. Um, and it was bound to uh, dissolve over time. Nevertheless, I think he says, and this is in some of his early work, he says, this was a, uh, this had value. This wasn't just a construction of ideology. This is something that we might try to reconstitute on more equal terms. And I'm kind of trying to say by, by way of analogy, um, the role of the, the orator, the, the elite citizen who gets up to address the public and takes on risk in doing that comes out of all sorts of um, ugly social circumstances and all sorts of hierarchies that we wouldn't want in our time. Nevertheless, there's something valuable in that that would be interesting to try to reconstruct on a more uh, appropriate uh, democratic or egalitarian basis. So I'm, I'm trying to think that, that the way Habermas thinks about how to bring back um, a more egalitarian public sphere is very much in line with what I think uh, about trying to bring back a more egalitarian way of thinking about oratory. Are you making money, but are you not sure you're doing all the right things with it? Are you investing it correctly? Are you saving it? Or are you somehow losing it? Is it falling between the cracks in your life? Does money stuff stress you out? It certainly stresses me out, and I'm sure it stresses out all of my listeners. Are you just winging it with your finances? I am, you probably are, and most of us do, because that is the nature of most of our financial self-management. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Facebook. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Playbook, the app for growing your own money. For the average user, Playbook helps boost their net worth by over $1.3 million. Yes, that's $1.3 million. There's no paperwork with Playbook. You just connect your own bank accounts and Playbook builds a plan to maximize your own tax advantages. Playbook tells you which tax-advantaged accounts you need, how much money to put into each of them, and even automates these processes for you. Money stuff can be stressful, we all know that, but Playbook makes it easy to review your own financial plan, track your own financial progress, and make changes at any time you want. Plus, it's all automated. Once your financial plan is in motion, Playbook is on it. They keep an eye on all your finances and adjust your plan accordingly. It's rare, very, very rare, that a finance app thinks about your finances as a whole. That's your, all your finances, your taxes, your savings, and all your life financial goals. Whether it's a wedding, a family trip, donating to charity, or the FIRE lifestyle, Playbook helps you get there faster. So what's my favorite Playbook feature? I really like the way in which the app shows me all my accounts, all my goals, and all my progress in a single place instead of having to log on to 10 different 
confusing finance apps. Uh, Automatica contribution to my Roth IRA and travel fund uh, every month. The playbook impact. It tracks and predicts how old I'll be when I can stop working forever. So get on the road to financial freedom. Go to helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on. And with my unique link, helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on, you get a free playbook impact. It predicts how much your net worth could grow if you start today. Helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on. Playbook to financial freedom and beyond. Rob, you, you call your introduction just words, which is a reference to our old friend Donald Trump, who dismissed oratory as just words. Trump, of course, initially made his political name on his critique of Obama. And you begin your intro with a reference to Obama's concession speech in February 2008 in New Hampshire. Was Obama a great speaker? Did he put words on fire? Did he take risks? Uh, yeah, I, I think that Obama was a, um, as I say in the book, I think he was the most uh, the, the most gifted and the best orator of his generation. I think that's gifted, hard to dispute. Gifted, right. Rob, and taking risks are two different things, aren't they? No, you're, you're right. I, th I think I think that's fair to say. And the, the other thing that I point out um, when I discuss this is that I think despite uh, you know Obama's gifts as an orator, um, his more lasting legacy to, to the study of political persuasion is all the, the ways in which his campaign led the way in the development of campaign analytics, um, data mining, uh, big data, quantification of political persuasion uh, in ways that go beyond the level of, of any one politician's oratory and that are really reshaping the way in which politicians across the spectrum are, are negotiating the landscape. And, and you're not a great admirer of that. You call that the technologi technologizing of politics. You quote the great American political theorist Sheldon Wallin on this. So this is not necessarily a particularly healthy development. No, I don't think it's a healthy development, I mean, regardless of who's using them. And I think the reason is, is because there are these techniques are all about uh, shielding uh, political elites from the risk of getting it wrong, about trying to develop messages that are as likely as possible to be approved before they're even spoken. Uh, and something in that, that idea of trying to speak from a position of safety, uh, something in that I think is destructive of the rhetorical bargain I talked about. It's really destructive of the nature of rhetoric. Well, and again, I don't mean to pigeonhole you too much, but in good Habermasian tradition, Rob, you do go back to the ancients. Uh, the first section of the book focuses on eloquence and antiquity. Uh, we've had a lot of shows about what we can and can't learn from antiquity. We had Mary Beard, the great British classicist, warning us about images of Roman autocracy. We also had the historian Edward Watt warning us about um, learning too much about decline from Rome. What do the Romans, and particularly um, Cicero, who you seem to begin this narrative with, what do the Romans teach us about the, 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 the art of speaking, of putting words on fire? Well, I think for Cicero, the interesting thing is that, that he is absolutely um, 
an elitist in his personal proclivities. He's someone who uh, climbed to the top of the greasy pole of Roman politics. And then at some points he called the, the ordinary people of Rome a scum. That was one of the words he used for them. Nevertheless. Sounds a bit like Trump. Bro. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But but here's the difference. I think nevertheless, his idea about eloquence and his idea about uh, the way in which an orator displays this quality of courage uh, in speaking to a hostile audience pushed him to kind of, I, I think, qualify his elitism a little bit, pushed him to think about the virtues of facing down a difficult crowd and even to celebrate the ways in which crowds are um, difficult, hostile, resistant. These are things that Cicero celebrates, not because he thinks that the crowd is uh, necessarily the font of all wisdom, but because he thinks that the struggle between the person who tries to persuade and the people who uh, listen and decide whether or not they're persuaded is essential to small r Republican politics. Um, so even as elitist a person as Cicero uh, develops this notion that that the the elite speaker, the, the orator, the, the politician needs to put something difficult on the line. And, and his experience of thinking about the difficulties and the challenges and risks of oratory come out of a time of political crisis, come out of time uh, a time of trying to figure out what could eloquence be at a time when our system of government, um, in his case, the Roman Republic, um, looks to be in terminal decline, and in fact was. And I think that that's very relevant for people thinking about the question of political decline uh, in our time. Yeah, as I said, we had Ed Woods on, on the show talking about that. Your background uh, is not only, uh, Rob, as, a, as an academic, but you've also been a, a speechwriter. So you know not just the philosophy of politics, but the art of politics too, and the ugliness of politics. Um, your analysis of antiquity is fairly, for better or worse, top-down. You talk about Cicero, um, Tacitus, uh, Demotheses, and I, uh, and, I, and I apologize for my terrible Roman pronunciation or uh, Greek pronunciation, Quintilianus. What about, and all these figures were important theorists and um, performers of political rhetoric, but what about the art of the crowd uh, in Rome or in Greece? We use the word today mob and we're sort of preoccupied with the nature of mob politics. Was the crowd different in antiquity? Do the people on Twitter or Facebook, do they need to learn something from the kind of people who listened? to Cicero or to Tacitus? I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think that the crowd, you know, to the extent that we understand what a Roman crowd was like, and of course, you know, the evidence is a little bit sparse because it's only the elite people who are writing and leaving behind these written sources. But I do think that, that a Roman crowd was um, uh, potentially uh, difficult, tumultuous, uh, loud, noisy, unafraid to... Violent to as shout. well, I would guess. Potentially violent, right. And I, th I think... That, you know, you say what you will about the violence, but I think the dynamic of thinking about persuasion, not as sort of a, a sense of passive listening or passive consumption, but really a, as a struggle, a potentially uh, painful or violent struggle between the person speaking and the people being spoken to, uh, is something I think we could stand to use a little bit more of. There's a great quote, I think, from, from the journalist uh, Henry Fairley, um, a British journalist who wrote The New Republic, and he said that uh, it's really that um, the... Uh, the requirement for the possibility of, of great eloquence is the possibility of heckling. That, that only if you could be heckled, if you say the wrong thing, is it really possible to say the right thing. And I think that this is sort of a bit more of a dynamic interaction between um, crowd and speaker than I, than I think comes out in a lot of our talk about polarization and, and cancel culture and, and so on. I think that there's a lot more of a interesting dynamic interplay uh, between the crowd and the speaker that, that comes out of, of what rhetoric was like in Roman times. It's no coincidence that all this great thinking on 
oratory and, and eloquence and speech comes out of exceptionally tumultuous political situations. And, and political or, or physical bravery. Uh, I, I don't suppose I'll make a lot of friends saying this, but my guess is that Trump would have been a much more successful orator in Rome than, than, than Obama. I'm not sure Obama was particularly comfortable with criticism, especially vocal or potentially violent criticism, whereas I think Trump would have actually rather enjoyed it. Well, I, I think that's interesting. I, I think about this in the book, about why Trump's uh, way of speaking seems to be appealing to so many people. Just um, words. Right, right, right exactly. You're and very think, good on right. that, Rob. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I, well, I think part of it is, is that um, he's obviously someone that doesn't sound like a regular politician. And there are populist um, politicians around the world, I mean, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, for instance, um, who you know, use a similar kind of style to differentiate themselves from, from the rest of politicians. I will say that I think that that's something that makes Trump effective and appealing because he's meeting a need that uh, doesn't seem to be met by the rest of the political spectrum. On the other hand, you know, the other thing I say about Trump is that um, in some sense, he seems like he meets this need, but in other senses, it's it's a little bit fake or a little bit gold-plated in the sense that... Like um, him and his, right, uh, exactly. his entourage, right. and his houses and his wives and his yeah, children. Right, right, right. Well, in the sense that in order to be, um, for this risk to really take place, you know, the, things have to be able to go meaningfully wrong for the orator. Things have to, you know, he has to be able to fall on his face. Part of Trump's, you know, shamelessness, part of Trump's um, really inability to be embarrassed um, is something that really kind of actually, you know, paradoxically, I think, lowers the stakes of his public appearances. You couldn't really imagine him saying anything that would go so badly that he would lose face. And, and if you don't have that, if you don't have that kind of character in which, which shame yeah, actually true. plays a role, right, then I think it's it's difficult to actually do what Norter is supposed to do, which is why I think some of the most fascinating stuff Cicero has to say is about this connection between shame and eloquence. You can't really be eloquent unless you start with a sense of shame. And I think that's a really interesting connection. That's a really important point. And and, and, and I think perhaps the single most important observation about Trump, above everyone else, is is he's incapable of shame. He's beyond post... He's a post-shame or a pre-shame human being. Mm -hmm. I am talking with Rob Goodman, the Toronto-based author of lovely new book, Words on Fire, Eloquence in Its Conditions. After the break, Rob... We're going to come back. We're going to talk about eloquence and modernity. We can talk Tocqueville and Burke and a number of other thinkers. So uh, stay with us. Uh, we'll be back in about 90 seconds, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same. Um, if we're connected 
uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. Hello, everybody. We are talking with Rob Goodman, the author of Words on Fire, Eloquence in Its Conditions, about political oratory over the years and how it might help us fix our politics and deepen our or restore, restore or re reinvent our democracy in the early part of the 21st century. We, we spent the first half of the show talking about antiquity. Uh, the second half of Rob's book and this show focuses on eloquence and the moderns. Um, Rob, uh, you begin uh, with, of course, Burke, who, ironically enough, Edmund Burke was the great critic of the French Revolution, which was an attempt, in a way, I'm guessing, to go back to the oratory of Rome. So, so why begin with Burke in terms of eloquence and modernity? Because well, I think Burke's in a really interesting position. Um, he's someone who is very much classically trained and classically educated and identifies himself with Cicero as someone who's a so-called new man, someone who climbs up the ranks from humble beginnings to become a political leader. Um, but more than that, um, his way of thinking about eloquence and how it shapes judgment decision-making is very much inspired uh, by the ancients and by Cicero. So I think why Burke is interesting is that he's doing this in a completely different context. He's not speaking in the Roman context. He's not speaking in a, in a tumultuous, small law Republican political context. He's speaking in a parliament that understands itself um, as being modern, as having rules and procedures that tamp down an eloquence. The theory of that kind of parliament, the idea of that kind of parliament is the idea that um, if we uh, place limitations on what can be said, if we place limitations on uh, excessive, uh, indecorous, uh, emotional speech, um, things will be more uh, orderly. People will be able to judge better. That, that's a very common 18th century argument. Burke says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Um, it's actually excessive extreme language, the, the sublime in Burke's, wor Burke's words, uh, scary images, um, frightening uses of language, really shocking turns of phrase that Burke thinks provoke people to judge uh, when they're too lazy to otherwise do so. So, so it's, this, it's yeah. Trumpian or, or Robespierrean. Um, and, and then I'm assuming that uh, Burke suggested that this transformed the crowd into a mob, did it? Well, it, it depends. And this is this is where the question of elitism comes into it. I, I think for Burke... Um, you are a bit of an elitist, though, Rob. Aren't well, you? Don't be well, shy. No, I, I am. Think. We well, all are, well, aren't we, these days? Well, I suppose if you write a book with footnotes, you're a little bit of an elitist. But but I will say for, for Burke, the, the thing that's and different... And you're referring right. to Burke and right, Cicero right. and Habermas. I mean, it's it's hard <laughs> not to be an elitist if you put Habermas at the heart of your book. Oh, that, that's fair to say. I, I, I understand your point. Um, you know, I, I think for Burke, you know, to your point, um, he thinks that different audiences respond in different ways to this kind of language, the kind of language that can you know, rile up uh, an audience of people who aren't prepared to judge can, for a group of people that he respects, like his fellow deliberators in Parliament, actually activate their, their judgment and actually activate their thoughtfulness and help them make better decisions. So I think the reason Burke's so interesting is because uh, in many ways, 
he's on both sides of this controversial question, this question of now that we have different forms of government, we have, we have representative government, we have parliaments and, and so on in, in the modern age, um, what, how should we speak within them? How do we speak um, in this new political setting? And Burke says there are still values of, of value, there, there's value added by thinking about the classical model of speech in a different setting other than the one for which it was built. He says that even in a parliamentary setting that is so far distant removed from you know the, the settings where Ciceroni eloquence developed, that kind of eloquence can still be valuable. That kind of eloquence can still lead people um, to judge better than they might otherwise judge. And that's a really interesting and controversial argument for Burke's time. You know, in Burke's time, um, his uh, critics and enemies in parliament uh, oftentimes thought he was ridiculous. Um, and this was connected in some ways to to his ethnicity. So people would, would connect this to uh, anti-Irish slurs. They would say Burke's rhetoric uh, smells like whiskey and potatoes. Uh, that was that was one of the um, more outrageous quotes from his enemies that I that I put in the chapter. But what it was about idea, uh, yeah. parliamentary democracy in contrast with the the revolutionary politics of um, of of France in the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century? Another of your chapters is dedicated to Thomas Babington Macaulay, British historian and Whig politician. It was again a great historian of parliamentary democracy what's is the, the the liberal british style parliamentary democracy that i guess burke was defending in the face of the french revolution and macaulay was also um writing about is that the ideal platform for oratory i think in many ways um it, it's built on assumptions about oratory, the, the idea being that it, it, parliament is very, very much government by discussion. The idea is that we govern by uh, deliberating publicly, uh, and it's this kind of deliberation and discussion uh, that holds governments and executives uh, to account. You know, parliament so, is literally so Churchillian in a sense, although Churchill came in the 20th century. Right, so you're right. Parliament is literally Men standing in place. a chamber, waxing eloquently. Right, right. So that that's part of it. But I would say the problem with this is that this is one of the stories I trace throughout the book is this model of, of government by discussion or government by public deliberation uh, in the eyes of a lot of its critics becomes less and less viable as, as politics changes, as mass politics develops, as political parties and political movements outside parliament grow. And yet this is what Habermas writes about a little bit also in his book on the structural transformation of the public sphere, uh, the idea that um, as the world outside parliament changes um, and as the world outside the public sphere changes, uh, these forms of deliberation that might have made sense in the past seem like they make a little bit less sense now and people struggle with that uh, and people struggle with trying to figure out how to adapt ways of speaking to the political conditions and ideas of representation that are changing all around them all the time. Uh, you've used the D word a couple of times, Rob, deliberation. Um, this is an important word uh, amongst certain political theorists, and I think including yourself. What does it mean, deliberative democracy? Well, I think deliberative democracy is the idea that uh, decisions that are made in a democracy are legitimate to the extent that they come out of a deliberative process in which everyone can participate. Everyone has a chance to talk things through and give reasons that appeal to the common good and, and strive to consensus even if we never quite get there. Um, now, that, that's impossible in real life. You can't literally get everyone together and then deliberate uh, in, a, in a country of millions or tens of millions of people. But you can think about this as a standard that, that democracy ought to try to live up to. And I think it's a valuable standard in lots of ways. But my, my, my 
critique of it, my concern with it, is that this model of what deliberation is supposed to sound like leaves out lots of ways uh, of speaking that have traditionally been considered deliberative. You know, it, it, deliberation often imagines itself as a conversation or as people being reasonable and kind of chatting back and forth, maybe like we're doing. Um, but this, this isn't oratory. This isn't rhetoric or speech making. This isn't using the passions and the character of the speaker and so on uh, to move people. Uh, deliberative Democrats want to rule a lot of those things out. Uh, and my point that I try to make in the book is simply that uh, when you try to rule those things out, that there are, there are costs uh, and consequences to ruling them out as well. You have a, a section on Alexis de Tocqueville, of course, the author of uh, Democracy in America and the Old Regime and the Revolution, a man who understood perhaps more than anyone else in the 19th century the nature of modern politics, of its shift from aristocracy to uh, parliamentary democracy. What does Tocqueville teach us about um, the potential to put words on fire? Uh, was his understanding of democracy in America with the intermediary institutions, was that a, a, a good place to nurture uh, modern political oratory in contrast perhaps with Rome? Well, I think in a lot of ways, Tocqueville is a theorist of mass politics. He's someone who recognizes that the, the political world uh, in the age of revolutions and in the age of developing democracy had fundamentally changed from the world out of which uh, the, these ideas of rhetoric grow. Um, so and Tocqueville, he's ambivalent yeah, about right. that. He, he recognizes he absolutely is. He's aristocrat. the strengths and weaknesses. In a way, he's deeply nostalgic for the antiquity of France and the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he recognizes the inevitability of democracy uh, and its benefits as well, right? Right. I know. I think that that's right. Uh, you know, one of the... Um, one of the words that, that Tocqueville uses, and I'm, I'm not going to even try to pronounce the French word, but the translation is is uh, dispersion. Uh, part of the idea that that public opinion is now so dispersed that it forms everywhere, that, that that persuasion and the development of the public mind happens everywhere, but also kind of nowhere. There are no real kind of uh, pivotal moments of rhetorical persuasion going on for Tocqueville because the public mind is this kind of disembodied thing that floats everywhere in a sense. Uh, and his point, I think, as someone who writes history and who writes the history of the French Revolution, is that if that's the case, if this is like the key modern development, you can't tell the story uh, of a revolution like that by focusing on the great rhetorical moments like someone like a Burke or a Macaulay would do. Uh, rather, you have to focus on the way in which the, the public mind develops in a way that you can kind of tease out through archival research or tease out through uh, social science, but not through the study of rhetoric. So Tocqueville, you know, despite his nostalgia for an earlier aristocratic age um, and for earlier, you know, and, and nostalgia for the classics is also someone who says in, in kind of you know, the, the conversation that goes back and forth in my book, he's one of the people saying, look, these models don't make sense anymore. These models are so out of keeping with the world in which we now live that it's excessively nostalgic, it's unrealistic to hold them up as any kind of standard. And, you know, and that's where he and Macaulay disagree. Macaulay is very much a classicizer uh, in comparison to Tocqueville. He's someone who very much does want to go back and thinks you can go back. Uh, Tocqueville would say, no, we have to go forward. The irony of Tocqueville, as I think, and one of the reasons why he's such an iconic writer and thinker today is because he was so deeply aristocratic, mm -hmm. because he, he, he wrote in such a uh, uh, an uncompromisingly lucid way, sort of learning from Machiavelli and the great art of political writing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a sort of another irony. One political thinker who crops up, who's in becoming increasingly fashionable these days, in spite of his Nazi associations, is 
Carl Schmitt, the German jurist, political theorist. What does Schmitt bring to this conversation, Rob? Why do you dedicate a chapter to him? Well, I think he, he sort of completes the story that I was trying to tell with those two earlier chapters about this conflict between modes of speech and modes of eloquence that come out of the ancient world and the developing world of mass democracy. And, and Schmidt's sort of the person who throws up his hands and says, look, this is ridiculous. That There's no longer even any kind of way of papering over uh, the contradictions here. You know, Schmidt's point, and I think he says this in, you know, verbatim in the, in the crisis of parliamentary democracy, uh, his point is no one believes that decisions are made on the basis of speeches or deliberations, whether at political rallies or in parliament or arguments in newspapers, everyone kind of agrees these things are, are fictions. They're marketing for decisions that are made behind closed doors in secret. Um, and Schmidt, I think, is, is fair and accurate in that diagnosis. He's someone who, in a really kind of radical way, sort of pulls off the Band-Aid and says, uh, in many ways, um, a system based on deliberation is no longer actually deliberating. You know, of course, I think where he goes wrong is in trying to come up with a new sort of more authoritarian mode of speaking that's going to replace this. And this is sort of why his analysis of rhetoric and what goes wrong um, in Weimar parliamentary democracy um, you know, leads directly to, to his fascism, his authoritarianism. It's all about coming up with a new authoritative way of speaking in public. Um, so you know, Schmidt is someone that I, I think has a lot of interesting things to say about the diagnosis and of course goes way off the rails when it comes to the cure. But I think, I think political thinkers like that are really interesting and worth our study, um, even if you know we, we abhor where they end up. And I think these are the people that oftentimes are repay study in a really interesting way. I wonder whether uh, Schmidt's reappearance is sort of almost his rehabilitation is a reflection of the fact that the authoritarianism of, of, of Trump, Duterte, Bolsonaro, Orban in particular in Hungary, mm -hmm. Erdogan in, 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 in Turkey, does underline the fact that there's something missing from our politics. And whilst these leaders are unpalatable, they are providing that, that frisson, that excitement, mm -hmm. which democratic politicians aren't. Um, you wrote, uh, you know, you've written a couple of books, uh, co-written a couple of books before this one. Uh, you wrote about Cato, Rome's last citizen. Uh, you also wrote an interesting book on Carl Shannon, the German mathematician. I don't know, if he actually wasn't German. The American. He's, he was American. He was from Michigan. Yeah, American right. mathematician who essentially invented the digital age. Can digital save us? Can digital return us to Rome? Um, uh, can, uh, uh, Rob, can. Can we go back? There's a lot of talk about Web3, this uncentered world. Um, is technology, you've, you point out in the introduction that the technologization of politics is a dangerous thing, but can technology help to rewind us hmm. back to the oratory of antiquity? Well, well, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a technological determinist. I don't think it's going to. I I, I don't think it has the answer or, or the or the harms. I you know because you know the, the saying is I think uh, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and, and I'm a political theorist, and that's my hammer. Uh, so my you know the thing that looks like a nail to me is the thing that allows technology to change oratory and politics is not just the technology itself. It's the way our concepts have changed. Uh, you know what what I come back to in the conclusion of the book and start off with in the introduction is the idea that we've lost the idea of the orator, not just someone who, anyone who speaks or any politician, but the idea that to be an orator is a really interesting, dangerous 
valuable, powerful social role that can be filled in certain good ways and requires certain kinds of virtues and character types. Um, and people used to be trained how to become one of those above and beyond just being a politician or a leader. Uh, we've lost that. We, we've, we've lost the concept of what it means to be an orator. We've lost a lot of the tradition of oratory and rhetoric. And because we've lost that, I think the way in which technology has changed political rhetoric um, uh, has been possible. Uh, so many changes that go into this heading of technologization um, have become possible just because we've lost that concept of what it is to be an orator. So it's not as if algorithms are ruining politics or algorithms are destroying rhetoric. Rather, it's that I think because we've lost a concept of what it means to take on risks in public, uh, political leaders are more than willing to use every tool at their, uh, their disposal um, uh, to, to get a win. Um, whereas despite his ruthlessness as a politician, I don't think Cicero quite saw politics in quite that way uh, because he's working out of a different tradition in which there are certain virtues and character types um, and ways of developing as a person that are inherent to being an orator that sometimes require you to say no uh, to the tools of persuasion, uh, sometimes require you to put yourself in, in situations of danger uh, and risk that, that our tools of persuasion and our uh, digital tools uh, increasingly make safer and safer and safer. safer for the right. it's, uh, the, but the point of the digital tools is they're incredibly safe because they're often anonymized. So anyone mm -hmm. can say anything without any consequences. Finally, Rob, I also do a show, How to Fix Democracy. Mm. Uh, and we've had some shows on 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 the keen on on this as well on citizen assemblies, mm -hmm. uh, which are an attempt, in a sense, to reinvent the, the the political lotteries of antiquity, particularly of Greece in a modern context. Could people and I? I went to um, Ireland, for example, to film um, some interviews with some people who were who won or lost the lottery in, in Ireland to be involved in citizen assemblies on an abortion. And they spoke mm -hmm. of the importance of words and of language and of conversation. Might citizen assemblies be the, 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 the reinvented platforms to stimulate political oratory? I, I think in lots of ways, they're, they're very promising. You know, I think, as you point out, uh, that, that from the ancient world onward, democracy has been connected with uh, this idea of, of random selection or lottery or sortition, uh, the idea that if you're really going to be ruled by, by the people, if, if you're really going to be self-governing, you don't pick who is going to rule you. You actually take turns ruling and being ruled uh, in the way mm. that Aristotle said. You know, th this idea that is a very ancient idea is that having elections to decide who's going to rule us uh, isn't democratic, it's aristocratic because it's selecting people on the basis of something and usually on the basis of their class and riches and education and so on. So I think that there is a lot to be said uh, for um, uh, the democratic value of these assemblies. And then and we wouldn't yeah. have the, the, the sort of the mock populism of a Trump or an Orban. No, and I think there's something disciplining about actually having to decide things for yourself. I mean, anyone who's ever been to a, to a council meeting or a parent-teacher conference meeting or a neighborhood council meeting knows um, that, that actual down-and-dirty politics can be uh, you know, frustrating and difficult and, and painful and ugly, but I think it dispels a lot of illusions to actually have to do it, to actually have to sit down with, with your neighbors uh, and hash things out and live with the consequences. Uh, that's the important thing, is you have to live with the consequences of your decisions, and that, that really disciplines the mind in many ways, I think. Accountability. I know that the Canadians are experimenting with citizen assemblies uh, in your backyard outside Toronto, Rob. They're not doing it in America. Perhaps that's the problem with America. The world, fortunately, is not all America. Rob Goodman, wonderful to talk to you. Your new book, 
words on fire, eloquence in its conditions. Is it out, Rob? Yeah, I know it's a university. It is out. Yes, yes. It came out yesterday, actually. Came out yesterday. Well, happy birthday yesterday. Yes, it's thanks so much. It's a really so good book, and I think you're addressing incredibly important issues, um, which uh, we're all trying to work out. We're all moving, trying to get out of this in the dark, Rob. So congratulations on, on, the, on the new book. Uh, as I said, Words on Fire, Eloquence in Its Conditions, just out yesterday. Um, what else should people be reading in these strange times? Mm. I know you're talking to me from Toronto at Ryerson University. But right, I would say that uh, one book that, that was really uh, interesting to me was was Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized. I, I write about it in this book. You know, I, I have some concerns with some of his analysis, but I think as far as understanding the political history of the U.S. and how polarization developed, uh, I think it's a great place to start uh, and, and very lucid and a quick, interesting read. Uh, you know, I, I highly recommend it. Well, thank you so much, Rob. It's a real, uh, real pleasure to have you on the show. You speak very clearly, as you should. <laughs> given that you've just written a book on words on fire, eloquence in its conditions, Rob Goodman. Keep well, Rob. We'll have you back on the show to talk more Habermas, words, and democracy. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. I hope so. And keep well. Keep well yourself. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have a, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.